Welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. That's me, and I'm so glad you're here. If you like what we do, I'd love it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're so compelled, write a review. That really helps, and maybe tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. If you want to get involved in the program, visit our website, talkingbeats.com, and click Support the Show, where you can make either a one-time or a recurring donation. As we look to continue having cliche-free conversations of real substance with a diverse range of the world's most compelling people, your support is so appreciated, especially as we look to expand and increase our offerings. If you have a question, comment, or thought, find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or if you wish to reach out directly, email me at daniel at talkingbeats.com. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get on with today's conversation. On today's program, economists Edward Glazer and David Cutler. The two colleagues from Harvard University have teamed up for a book, not their first project together, but their latest titled Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. It poses tough questions about the crossroads at which our cities now stand. During the global COVID crisis, cities grew silent as people worked from home. If they could work at all, the normal forms of socializing came to a halt. How permanent are these changes? Advances in digital technology mean that many people can opt out of city life as never before. Will they? Are we on the brink of a post-urban world? Let's find out from our two experts today. David Cutler specializes in the functioning of the health system and the public role in that system. And Edward Glazer, the economic life of the city and public policies that surround our urban world. I'm pleased to have them both right here with me. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you very much. There's a um, chapter in the beginning of this new book called Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. The heading of this section is, Who Are We and Why Did We Write This Book? So uh, why why did you feel that the pandemic that is roaring back has roared back? It seemed for a few months had been sort of fading away into the rearview mirror, at least to casual observers like myself. Why did you feel that the two of you needed to uh, sit down together and pen something about what it was doing to cities. Obviously, not everybody had the luxury to, to flee to a house isolated on a gorgeous lake in New Hampshire like I did. So what's happening here? I have spent my life studying cities. David has spent his life studying the health system. We have often worked on papers together that had some degree of joint overlap, such as work on obesity or work on segregation uh, in the 1980s or more recently work, work on opioids. This pandemic is in some sense a reminder of how vulnerable cities are to con- contagious disease. Pandemic disease, illness is an ancient companion of city life. You know, in the book, we talk about 2,400 years of, of uh, pandemics. We've had a lucky century in which this has not happened. But we've had a lot of near misses in the last 20 years, which means this could easily happen again. And consequently, we really need to Think about policies which can pandemic-proof our cities and pandemic-proof our larger society. And that really requires both someone who thinks about the healthcare system, but also someone who thinks about cities. Yeah, you know, it's sort of amazing because, right, you think about the pandemic and you think about it, it as a health issue. And, that, and of course it is. But then its impacts get felt everywhere. 
So it gets felt in the economy and it gets felt in business startups and it gets felt in things like, are people going to be willing to live and work in cities? And so it's amazing how even the, if you will, the most confined of problems, that is problems limited to a health intervention rapidly have take on so many social dimensions. And so I think part of what we can bring to this is to show how it is that these various social dimensions relate to the health components. So we don't think about it as, you know, just a health issue or just a, a social issue, but as some combination of all of those. When was the point where you were looking at the development of this pandemic? And people who listen to this podcast know I, I was having a jolly old time down in South America playing concerts in Buenos Aires and all over the place going to great steakhouses and sort of in the back of my mind looking at this odd, odd map of the world where three countries were in red at the time. It was China, Iran, and Italy. When did you turn to each other and say something's really off here in a way that maybe you didn't with SARS or MERS or other outbreaks or potential outbreaks, Ebola, that you talk about in the book that didn't explode into worldwide pandemics? David, you should take that. You, you, were, you were vastly more prescient than I was about this. <laughs> um, pretty early on, I had had inklings that this could really be a major issue because once a pandemic is out, is out somewhere, it's very hard to contain it. So if you don't contain it at the source, it just becomes extremely difficult. People had been warning about this for years. There's actually a lovely TED talk that Bill Gates gave where he said, you know, we've worried a ton about nuclear war and we've done a lot of things and we've worried not at all about international pandemic and I'm more scared by that than I am by nuclear war. So this had been sort of on people's mind, the idea about pandemic disease and how ill-prepared we were. And then sort of saw what was going on in China in January and February. And I thought, hmm, you know, it's possible that this could be the one that really gets out. And then when you once it's gone to a couple of places, it's virtually impossible to stop because you, you have to really isolate it. And given the contagion time and the speed of travel, it just becomes impossible to do that. So, so, so then it became clear that it was just going to be a big issue. And the question was just how big was it going to be? And unfortunately, it turned out to be even bigger than we had feared. Whereas for me, it became crystal clear to me only when Harvard told me I couldn't come into my office, which was on or about March 20th. So I was, I was way behind <laughs> the curve on this. <laughs> you, you, you were just waiting to show up and find the door padlocked. That's, that that's be, right. <laughs> uh, I see a, lock, a, a true lockout. I get it. Uh, so y you talk a lot about cities being uh, sort of the place where, you know, culture flourishes, where people go because they want to see the symphony. They want to see me play. They want to go have a meal at a three-star Michelin restaurant. They want to <laughs> do things that maybe they, they can't find in rural Montana. Uh, at the same time, obviously, you know, five million people or more, you know, live in Brooklyn. What do you think is sort of the way forward? I mean, if I, if I look at, again, the title, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, it's pretty bleak. What is Edward Glazer? What you see is sort of a way to improve all of this, and then we can get into some of the healthcare aspects that so, are all laid bare here. Great. So I think there are there are really two sets of questions, one of which is, how is it that we can pandemic-proof our world more effectively? And those are questions about both systems to uh, protect the world. We, we talk about something we call NATO for health, and, and I'm sure David uh, will speak about that shortly. And then how to 
change our healthcare system from one that you know really spends ungodly amounts of money uh, without, in fact, doing a great job of protecting us in, against the pandemic into a system that does more to keep our bodies safe. Um, in terms of urban policy, the impact of natural disasters, all natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, is always mediated by the strength of civil society when the disaster hits, right? So in the 19th century, we had urban plagues that were deadlier than COVID-19, cholera, yellow fever, and they came and they struck and the cities kept on growing. And not only did they keep on growing, the cities came together to build infrastructure, to create new institutions that made them healthier. By contrast, when plague hit Constantinople in 541 uh, CE or Athens in 430 BCE, right, the effects were fairly catastrophic, in part because those cities and their civilizations already teetered on the edge of a knife. Now, certainly when I look at our cities in 2020, and it feels different than it did in 2001, where the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers struck a New York that felt remarkably united. I mean, it's hard to think of sort of right now as, as Rudy Giuliani as being a sort of national hero, but he really was. And in some sense, there was a, a pragmatic consensus around cities that was very different than where we are right now, where there's a great deal of acrimony, a sense in which cities are doing a great job for a select few and not doing a great job for you know millions of outsiders, be they the kids of the poor or people who are feel that they're being harassed on streets or people who actually are being beaten up or killed by cops, um, or people who can't afford to, to buy a, uh, a housing unit. So without going into the full set of policy prescriptions, the basic point is that cities are at their best when they are machines for helping outsiders, when they're places that anyone can come and find a brighter future. And we need to get back to that. We need to get back to the sense that the city is really belongs to everyone, and that it's there for everyone, and its strength depends upon everyone caring for it. I spent a lot of time in country places and obviously a lot of time in cities all over the world, all the big cities regularly. Uh, and in America, certainly, something that, that you didn't mention but just now, but I, I, I think you sort of implied, is that there's a great distrust and distaste of cities from rural folk. Uh, it's something that you see, oh, oh, he's he's a city guy. You know, he's he's moving to the big city. We don't want anything to do with him. Uh, we want the space. We want the freedom of the countryside. A lot of people, a lot of Americans don't want anything to do with cities. Isn't that right? It is a great thing that America has small towns and suburbs and cities and mountain ranges and that people have the opportunity to make different choices about where to live, right? As much as I admire the terrific things about that cities have, right? Uh, it's not as if I think that everyone should live in a city. The problem, however, is that America has for centuries been politically divided between urbanites and rural dwellers. And the weird thing is it's not just when, you know, they have actual political uh, you know, topics in which they disagree. There's often this sort of strange cultural thing and often real urbanites for some reason or other because they're in America think that they're not. So, you know, Amer Los Angeles is filled with residents of single family detached homes who basically think of themselves as yeoman farmers, right? Even though they are residing in one of the world's great cities. Um, and I think that's in some sense the, the residue of this, you know, uh, less than friendly to uh, urban uh, culture 
thing that runs through uh, America from Thomas Jefferson on down. But in fact, uh, cities have long been part of the American dream. Um, cities are the economic heart of America. And, uh, you know, you may not necessarily like urban culture. Uh, you know, you don't need to like all cultures, but it, it would be better if everyone in this country respected each other's cultures a little bit more. You know, in some ways, the city is where people go when they really want to seek out on their own the way that people used to go west. You know, so people used to head to the plains and California and so on. Now, of course, the continent is settled. When people want to leave, invariably, they want to go to cities. One of the interesting things about cities over time is that the cost of living in some of the, some of the most desirable cities has just skyrocketed. So it's virtually impossible to say, oh, gee, I want to go to Silicon Valley and make my fortune working my way up because there's basically nowhere you can live while you're making your way up. And that's a really unfortunate thing. That's sort of a closing of the frontier in the same way that telling people they can't you know, move out west or something is a, is a closing of the frontier. And that, that's a really big problem for society. You two both teach. You're at Harvard. Uh, I wonder what you do when it comes time to sitting down with students or giving a lecture. Uh, do, do you interact with students? Is this all big lectures? Do you have class discussions? Oh, what, what, do you, what do you say? What do you tell them that they should be doing after they graduate? I actually, I don't know what you tell. I know what I tell them, but it depends a lot. on. I, I teach two big classes, uh, one of which is intermediate microeconomic theory, uh, in which my only job is to get them excited about economics and especially about mathematical economics. And then I teach, a, and that class is taken mostly by sophomores. And the ones, the people that I talk to there often want to become economists. But I also teach a course called the Economics of Cities. And with that, uh, I have a very clear message, which is uh, I am trying to get them excited about cities and excited about helping to protect and strengthen the cities of the world as being one of the 21st century's great vocations. Now, that can mean lots of different things. That can mean working for city government. That can be being a researcher who studies cities. That can mean working for a nonprofit that helps helps dealing with the problems of the urban poor. That can mean cities in sub-Saharan Africa or cities in Latin America or cities in Iowa, right? Um, But it's very hard to imagine that there is going to be a bright future for humanity unless our cities continue to work and ideally work much better than they have been, particularly at at taking care of their most vulnerable citizens. And that can only happen if people recognize that the city is not just there to give to them, but they also have some responsibility for it. What I tell them is actually fairly similar to Ed. I say, you know, both me and as the teacher and you as the students here are blessed in that we have the ability to go to a place like Harvard and we have the intellectual resources and material resources and so on. And a part of that means that one should give back to society as much as possible. And what I, David Cutler, tell you as a student is find something you're really interested in. Find a problem that that really interests you. It can be healthcare. That's obviously a problem that interests me. It can be urban. It can be environmental. It can be whatever it is. And put some of your passion into that and say that I want to work to try and make the world a little bit of a better place. And I don't care. You know, you don't have to agree with me. I'm not, I don't teach you because I want you to agree with me. I teach you because I want to teach you how to think about issues. And so you remind me of the great 
quote from uh, one of my teachers, one of the great musicians of the 20th century, Janos Starker, the great Hungarian cellist, who said, my job is to disturb you. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And that's our job is to is to disturb them and to say, here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's how I approach it. But but you should approach it as you feel it's appropriate to do and then kind of grab hold, you know, the same way that, you know, a bulldog will grab hold of 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 a rope and say, I'm not going to let this thing go until I'm until I'm happy with it. OK, what's that thing for you right now, David Cutler? The thing about that the pandemic has taught us is how vitally important it was always important to get the healthcare system to work better. And now it's even more important because not only was it failing in its job of keeping us as healthy as possible for as little resource and dollar cost as possible, now it's all now we know it's also failing in terms of its ability to keep us safe from pandemic disease. And so that that just makes me it, it's just it's just a, a terrible feeling when something that we care about so much as a society is not doing what we want it to do. Talk about more the healthcare system failing because obviously if you have really good insurance, you live in a city that has a good hospital or good hospital system near you, you have a good doctor. We've had a lot of great doctors on Eric Topol and Michael Osterholm and Abraham Verghese. All the best doctors have been on here. And all of them talk about the need to have a personal relationship. So let's say you have all that. It works great for you, doesn't it? But not, if you don't, if it, no? No, not even then. It can work great. But, you know, for example, the difficulty of using the system is very complex. It's very, it's very complicated to use the system. So if your doctor says, oh, you know, I really want to check this out. Let's get an image on it or let's do something. Which follow-up doctor is in network or not? How much would you pay? Can you really know the quality of the doctor? When you have surgery, the mortality rates for the doctor can vary by eight to one. And it's very difficult to know that. So even if you're very wealthy, when you look in the data, people who are very wealthy make just horrible mistakes in medical care, in part because nobody really knows it's easier to find out whether the phone you're going to buy has the things you want it to have than whether the doctor that's going to operate on you has the capability that you want. But there's some aspect of trust. If your primary care doctor says, this guy's really good, you're probably going to believe him and not think he's, he's trying to mess with you. Correct. It is an element of trust. And what we've learned is that, um, unfortunately, that doesn't do the job that there are still doctors who practice who have very poor outcomes. There are still people who get sent to doctors out of network where they have to pay a fortune. There are still settings where um, people, where the care, even great places where the care can be haphazard because they're just not coordinated from doctor to doctor or location to location. So the average quality of medical care is not exceptionally high and that's true even when you look at people with all the resources in the world. How can we streamline that? How can we add sort of uh, security rails so someone so someone doesn't fall off the cliff? The thing about, um, I sort of use this analogy whenever I want to, um, whenever I want to bother my medical friends. Um, and it probably works uh, very well, I'll give you I'll give you the version that may be more appropriate for you. The best cellists in the world 
spend their entire lives figuring out how to play the cello better and better every day. The best surgeon does not do the same with respect to surgery. She or he practices some, treats some, but is not as obsessed. And that's true throughout the distribution. There are no hospitals that are obsessed with making sure that every single thing goes right. And physicians, organizations that are obsessed with, did this patient get only what they needed at minimum possible cost? So it's really quite haphazard the way that this plays out, unfortunately. And, and that's really problematic because when the haphazardness happens, you know, happens to people, they're not in a, in a great frame where they can do a lot about it. So you see people saying, oh, it was just, you know, terrible, but, you know, there was no way around it or, 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 or we're just frustrated as heck dealing with the medical care system. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. In other countries, it's not always that way. So we, we know we could do better. We know we could do better, but it doesn't sound like there's a simple prescription uh, for doing better. Not that one would expect there to be, but one thing that, that is, is striking that you were sort of just alluding to is, is um, in the chapter called Can Our Bodies Be More Pandemic Proof? Uh, the two of you write, or maybe one of you, I don't know who wrote every word, but let's just say the two of you. Um, However, even in generally healthy cities, there are many people who die too young. Take New York City, our earlier poster child for the health of the poor. Life expectancy on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, 86 years. Take the one-hour subway ride south, and then east to Brownsville in Brooklyn. In those 12 miles, life expectancy falls by about 11 years, almost one per mile. It's pretty shocking. It's, it's very shocking. Actually, that sentence in particular contains words from both of us. David's responsible for the life expectancy, and I'm the guy who knew how to use Google Maps to figure out the distance. <laughs> oh, I, I knew I was getting it right when I said the two of you probably wrote <laughs> it. it. I, I had a feeling I could sense the style of two people <laughs> mi mixed into one sentence. <laughs> and and I, would, I would say probably that most of the sentences had in, in the book had input from both of us, actually. It was yeah. really quite a delight. Okay, good, because it, it, it but, so far seems you're, you're, you're on, on the same page. Although if, if you have anything you wish to have a brawl about, just you know, go for it. Um, but, that's, and, and but, <laughs> but that's really right. And the unfortunate thing is, is that, that you know, that's not an unusual thing. But both in the U.S., you observe that in every, every city that anyone's ever looked. Around the world, you can observe that that as well. Not quite as stark, I would guess, in most countries, although we don't really know because most countries haven't quite done it this way. But my guess is the U.S. is more stark than most other countries along those lines. But it also means that, you know, people in the richer parts of New York do interact with people in the lower income parts. They may not go to their houses, but they meet in stores, they meet in restaurants, they meet in barbershops, they meet on the subway and so on. And so, Everyone in New York is really exposed to anyone in New York being sick. And if there were an outbreak in the poorer parts of Brooklyn, it would not take long to reach Manhattan at all. And probably, you know, depending on the, on the, the condition, it would reach Manhattan well before anyone really knew there was anything there and that um, one should do something about it. So I think even if someone were totally selfish, even if they were Scrooge personified, they, you have to care about what's going on elsewhere. 
because disease now spreads, spreads so rapidly that before you know it, it can be affecting you. Richard Haas was on here with me recently, uh, and he was talking about the need, the urgency to get vaccines over to India. This is when India was having their largest uh, spike yet. And, uh, and it sort of goes to what you're talking about, that I think a lot of people, myself included, were, were sort of breathing a sigh of relief when we got the vaccine. And then so slowly this started to set in that uh, we weren't all happy-go-lucky, hunky-dory, right, when we were vaccinated. I mean, think of, I don't know exactly right now the percentage of the world that's vaccinated, but it's very low. That's absolutely right. And this is a problem because uh, both because of their own health, but also because a disease that starts anywhere can spread anywhere. And even within our disease, right, um, there's at least some chance that the Delta variant, which is plaguing us so much, began in India. Right. And because you've got this, you know, this wave of unvaccinated individuals, it just enables the disease to burble along and to mutate and to become stronger and to come back and, and bite us again. And that's indicative of a larger problem going beyond COVID, which is that, you know, as long as we think that India's health problems aren't our health problems, new diseases will come out of India, right? New diseases will come out of China unless we recognize that the world is linked. And so we think going forward, we really do have to have a global commitment to health. We need an organization that's more muscular than the World Health Organization, an organization that feels more like NATO, in that it's a small set of countries, at least at first, that is well-funded, has a very clear mission, and you know it has clearly focused on monitoring and uh, then potentially shutting borders, uh, at least among its member states, when something bad happens. But part of the NATO for Health vision is one in which the member countries who are poorer will get aid for sanitary assistance, so to help build sewers so that we don't end up treating uh, viruses and bacteria with you know, antibiotics and breeding antibiotic-resistant superbugs. Uh, but instead, we actually get rid of them like we, as we did in the U.S. or in Europe by having urban sanitary infrastructure. And in exchange for that, they accept more health-related rules, including better monitoring and rules that separate animals from human beings. Americans have not traditionally been big on funding foreign aid, but we did it during the Marshall Plan. And we did it during the Marshall Plan because we thought that the future of America itself, our lives, depended on investing in Europe after World War II, given the threat of, of communism. You know what? Our lives still depend on investing in the outside world. And we just have to do it in a way that improves the world's health rather than just trying to reboot their economies after a world war. You mentioned the World Health Organization, WHO. And to me, there's an indicative, emblematic tweet that they put out that, that, has, that haunts me constantly. Well, not con- oh, that's an exaggeration. That haunts me occasionally. And the tweet was on January 14th, 2020. And it went like this. Preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus identified in Wuhan. Okay, so uh, there was that, saying, okay, Wuhan officials say there's there's no human-to-human transmission, and so here's that. End of story. Uh, they've really done poorly, haven't they, the WHO? Why do we need something more muscular I mean, this, the, the, the tweet sort of speaks for itself. It's so ridiculous. But even in the time between January 14th, 2020, and now, September 2021, they haven't really rectified and, and repaired their reputation in the eyes of many. 
That's entirely correct. The general sense is that the WHO, first off, its funding is not all that big. Its funding is actually quite small, and it depends for a fair amount of its funding on China. So at least partly the WHO was probably being nice to China for fear that China would cut off its funding in the legitimate sense that it does a lot of good, which it does. It does do a lot of good. But as a result, what becomes a scientific question, which is what should we think about this new virus, then becomes a political question, which is what should we say about China? The same thing happened a few years earlier when there was the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, and the WHO was afraid of promulgating the information too widely for fear that it would affect the economies of West African countries uh, because of, because of you know, stamp, not stampedes of people out, but potentially companies not wanting to do business there. What is a scientific issue became a political issue. In my view, that is just a huge mistake. That if you're charged with a, doing a scientific task, that is the task that you should do. The reason why we, in the book, use NATO as an example is that NATO really had a, if you will, the equivalent of a scientific task, which was to stop communism from taking over Western Europe. And that was it. That was the task, and that's what everyone agreed, and they were going to do and act as necessary to do that. And that type of thinking is really what we need so that if you're not sure it's human-to-human contact, you don't have to trust the Chinese, and you don't have to be afraid of offending someone because that's your job is not to worry about that. There's a whole other aspect of all this uh, that sort of is hanging over everything, which is that... Uh, everything shut down, and those who were able to went home or, or went to a, a lake house somewhere in some pretty state and started doing all their work over Zoom. And, uh, you know, if they had a good Internet connection, great, no problem. They were just sort of living their best lives. And <laughs> to use a term I hate that millennials use, it first time I've ever used it and last time. And so there they were uh, comfortably on, on the couch or whatever, uh, you know, on Zoom. That wasn't able to happen with a lot of people. Uh, but a lot of people who did it got used to it, liked it. What does that do to cities when offices are empty and deserted? And in fact, you have later on uh, in this chapter, what is the future of downtown? I like how a lot of these chapters end with a question mark because it sort of uh, signifies that um, there's, there's a lot we don't know, but you know more than I do. So in any case, so you're talking about the demand for city space. And you write here, in about one-fourth of America's major office markets, commercial rents average less than $24 per square foot per year in the third quarter of 2020. Those areas such as Cleveland, Ohio, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, face the greatest risk of long-term vacancies. So what does long-term office vacancy look like for a city? Is that is it inherently a bad thing? Is it part of an evolution that might have happened anyway. I think a lot of companies, certainly from friends of mine, I have friends who work in every field you can imagine, say to me, you know, my company sort of didn't think this was possible before. No one really thought of it, but we like it. What's happening here? So this is in some sense a central question of the book, is, is what's going to happen to 
downtowns, what's going to happen to city life. And That's why I brought it up. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just start with your, with your opening observation, which is the tremendous inequality of experiences during the, the pandemic. So May 2020 was the apex of working from home during the pandemic. Um, in that, that month, about 50 million Americans were working from home. But while 68.9% of Americans with advanced degrees were working from home, 5% of Americans with, who were high school dropouts were working from home. 15% of Americans who only had high school degrees were working from home. So wildly unequal. And if we think about a future that is you know, dominated by Zoom, that's a future that is even more unequal than the last 30 years because that's a future that really doesn't include the least educated 30% of Americans, for whom over the past 100 years, as factory jobs have disappeared, even either because of automation or because of outsourcing, the ability to serve a, a coffee with a smile, to whip up a foamy latte, has been an employment safe haven, right? And during 2020, during the pandemic, those face-to-face -face urban service jobs disappeared in a heartbeat. I mean, in 2019, 32 million Americans worked in leisure, hospitality, and retail trade. And these are incredibly important segments of the American economy, especially for people who you know, don't have a degree from MIT. Now, going forward, all of us believe that there will be some reduction in demand for office space. Um, there are some businesses that, you know, as you said, have decided that it's nicer to go to, to, go to Zoom. Now, in a place like New York, or San Francisco, or Seattle, or Boston, right, where demands, demand was sky high beforehand. What waning demand for office space means is that prices drop and somebody else moves into the office. And there is just no problem with that. I certainly am not going to shed any tear because, because cities get slightly cheaper in the medium run. Um, and in fact, in some cases in Boston, the crazy thing is that, you know, the whole market is now dominated by the by the quest for lab space. And so there's so much money chasing uh, health dollars. They're converting low end commercial space into labs, which is amazing. Um, so, you know, new new uses are going in as old uses go out. But in these markets where, as you said, uh, office rents are below twenty four dollars a square foot, these places, a 20 percent, a 30 percent drop in demand could lead to widespread vacancies. And those vacancies ripple out. Right. Those vacancies ripple out because if you don't have people coming into the office, you, know, you don't have demand for people who are working in the local restaurants or working in the local retail shops. And so the whole area can decline. Now, in some sense, decline is is, you know, somewhat inevitable in cities as it is in life. But it can be pretty terrible, especially for the people who are still living in the area. I mean, the, the arc of Detroit, which is in some sense America's great tragic opera of a city, right? A city which, which soared so high during the 40s and 50s, probably the most productive place in the planet in the 1950s. And of course, it's had an enormously difficult 50 years. And it had a terrible early experience with COVID as well, right? That reminds us of how painful it is when cities actually decline. And I think for that reason, it is really important that cities look forward post-pandemic to really fighting their problems with their A-game, which means recognizing that talent is mobile, businesses are mobile, and they're going to have to deliver value for, their, uh, for the people who pay the taxes in order to keep them nearby. But at the same time, there is such hunger to do something for the less fortunate, to do something for the outsiders, that they're going to need to deliver on that as well. And that's a sort of major focus of the back half of the book, 
where there are some areas like making more affordable housing where the city doesn't actually need to spend more money. It needs to face down the entrenched insiders who are against growth and just permit more ordinary housing for middle income people. You just need to get the cranes going. You just need to get the buildings going. And if you can brazen the politics out, cities can become affordable once more, as New York was in the 1920s, when during some years it built more than 100,000 units a year. Now, other problems like fixing our schools or fixing our police don't have easy answers. It's sort of the same painful thing that we went through when talking about health care reform. It's not an easy, easy thing to do. It requires actually administrative fixes. Fixing the cops is somewhat easier, right? Because in fact, the problem with policing is that we want police to do two things. We want police to stop crime, but we also want them to treat every citizen with a reasonable amount of respect. To get that, you're going to need to give cops a dual mandate and you're going to need to have metrics, let's say citizen surveys, and you're going to have to hold police chiefs accountable for delivering both low crime rates and better ratings on citizen surveys. Almost assuredly for that police chief to deliver, they're going to need more, not less resources. And so oddly, even if you think the police system is currently underperforming, that actually means funding the police more, not defunding the police. In the case of schools, I've been a bystander, uh, a side participant in the world of school reform over the last 20 years. It's proved enormously hard. The idea that we're pushing in the book is one of a, you know, a wraparound vocational training system that doesn't displace the existing educational system that occurs after school, on summers, on weekends, that is competitively produced, that is pay for performance. You know some, whether or not someone knows how to program or knows how to be a plumber when they graduate. And so you only get paid if you actually uh, deliver those skills. But you know, I'm not advocating scaling that up for all of America. I'm advocating starting with ignorance, starting with the humility to learn and recognizing that improving the skills of America is absolutely vital for the future of our country and for its cities. As the two of you know, uh, music always plays a role on this podcast. It's been my entire life, and everybody uh, talks about music when they come on here a little bit. Uh, cities are filled with music. Uh, that's, a, a, as I said before, a big reason why people like cities. Does music play a role in either of your lives? I, I, I know you're, you're both economists. You mentioned the Detroit being the tragic opera. Are you, are you putting on Verdi and Puccini at night? <laughs> you want to go first, David? Uh well, my tastes run occasionally to classical and a little bit more to uh, 1980s uh, pop. Um, but I will say that music, it's, I find it actually stimulates my thinking because it really makes connections in the brain, I think, that I just don't normally get. And taking, you out of, taking oneself out of a comfort zone is really, it's just a terrific way to stimulate thinking. Can I just say, interrupt you for a second, or maybe we're done. I, I'm glad you said that because I certainly respect everybody's relationship to music, but I'm I'm, I'm not a fan when people say, oh, I, I, I listen to it to relax. You know, let, let me turn the FM to, to the Vivaldi station while I, you know, put up my feet with a cocktail afterwards. I, I really think music should stimulate you. And, and if you listen seriously or even passively sometimes i do some of my best listening when i'm doing something else but something jumps out at me i I hope music stimulates people like like a good book does like a a serious art exhibit does it shouldn't just be oh oh, that that was pretty and my day is a little better it's okay if it's that but it's much better if it stimulates you and makes you think because music can be disturbing and it should be so I, i will tell you three music things so first of all i'm currently struggling over over Bach. And I have a particular problem in that I, I'm trying to figure out how much and where I like the Klemperer 
version of the St. Matthew Passion versus the Gardner version of the St. Matthew Passion. So ah. that's, that's a currently current <laughs> obsession that I have. And I'm, I, I have nothing smart to say on it. I'm just struggling with it. Um, second, second thing I will say that as an urbanite, when I'm really trying to, to listen to music that, that just elates me, uh, I just go back to the Waltz King. I'm just transported to fin de siècle Vienna and all of the, the you know, fun and intellectual ferment that occurs then whenever I listen to the, the Blue Danube Waltz. Third, I would be uh, lying if I did not confess that, like David um, and many young men who came of age during the 1980s, the Go-Go's have a special place in my heart. <laughs> uh, and fourth, I will say my, my, I did spend six years studying piano and I was terrible from start to finish. But I had the most wonderfully patient and brilliant piano teacher. And one of the things that was remarkable about him is his name was Boris Barrere. He was the son of the legendary Simone Barrere, who was a pianist who actually died while playing in uh, Carnegie Hall, uh, 1951. Uh, And he had a cerebral hemorrhage during a uh, performance of Grieg's Piano Concerto. Um, the, the, at Carnegie Hall, the, the son, however, because he pretty much gave up on me as a pianist, we spent the whole time talking politics. And I would say the anti-communism that I imbibed as a child came mostly from him, uh, because he was a Russian emigre as his father had been. So I got, I got that from him. So it did really have a huge part in my intellectual history, even though I, I didn't actually particularly learn how to play the piano very well. <laughs> and your life is all the richer for it. Now, John Elliott Gardner versus Otto Klemper, just uh, quickly, for those who don't know, of, uh, you're, you're talking about two polar opposite interpretations of Bach. The great thing about a great composer like Bach or Mozart or Beethoven is that they stand up to a huge range of interpretations. Otto Klemper is the absolute emblematic, big 19th century interpreter. In, he was born in the late 1800s uh, of Lots of people, a big luxurious sound, a sort of richness washes over you with Bach and John Elliott Gardner, much more contemporary living conductor now, and it has this this sort of steely aggressivity, much more slim uh, yep. down version of Bach. Uh, give me Klemperer all day, but uh, Elliott Gardner is a, a very fine musician. <laughs> <laughs> So what was wonderful is you just did so much of a better job of describing them than I could have possibly done. So I'm glad I brought up the topic and then let you then, then you you riffed on it. <laughs> uh, for for the two of you, I, I, we're short on time. There's so much more to talk about. It's a wonderful book. I I wonder if if you could each give. We mentioned the word prescription before. Give a little diagnosis and prescription. If you broaden out from the classroom, it's not an economics class here, but w- what can someone do to sort of navigate things are are chaotic they're hectic do you have any advice generally when it comes to living better look we've just been through this awful pandemic we've just been social distancing and we've still got delta on our hands and that's that's brutal but the, the starting point is that you have to take away from this that like every human contact is a blessing right every person is a potential friend every smile is is a great treat right so the most important thing is to take pleasure in other human beings again is to take pleasure in the joys of human interaction again. And I know it's hard during Delta, but we are incredibly lucky to have so many extraordinary people around us in this country. And we need to start enjoying that. And we need to also, you know, hopefully this pandemic reminds us of what really matters, which means taking care of each other in in our culture, in our, in our society. The thing I would say, I agree with all of that. The thing I would say is that Sometimes when things look the worst is when you can do the most. And so, you know, we're we're sort of overwhelmed. All of us are overwhelmed by what's going on. And yet that also presents occasions to say, you know, 
now is the time where we're open to making change and much of that change can be for the better. I'll just give you one, one very small example of that. During the pandemic, um, many people, when they needed to see their doctor, uh, went on uh, uh, telemedicine, either audio or video with their doctor. For at least 15 years before then, people had been saying, how come you can't speak with your doctor on the phone? How come you can't video your doctor? People said, yeah, 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 it's coming, it's coming, but you know, we're not there yet. And we managed to do in 15 days what people could not do in 15 years. And so that really gives some hope that when things look the bleakest, that's often a time where we can get things done. And so that's my hope is that we'll be able to get more things done now than we had um, than we had thought possible just a little while ago. That's a very nice note to end on, David Cutler, along with your colleague Edward Glazer with the wonderful book, Just Out, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. I hope we get a chance to do this again. I indeed thank you both very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk. The original theme music is by Ronald Barkham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mose, and Doug Christian is executive producer. We invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash talkingbeats. And be sure to check us out on social media. We'll see you next time on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk.